From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. John Denver made music history with a song that came out 50 years ago. How many people write something that just becomes embedded in the culture? And the phrase Rocky Mountain High accomplished that for him more than any other song in his catalog. It eventually became Colorado's second state song, despite concerns it might be about drugs. High is kind of a generic term. And so what's a traditional thing to eat around, you know, the campfire, but s'mores. So you could have, you know, sugar highs. We reflect on the musician's life and legacy. John's music spoke to the heart. It spoke to coming back to the environment. It spoke to being present in consciousness and possibility. Hi, I'm CPR's President Stuart Vanderwilt. I'm taking just a moment to speak to all of our valued members and to thank you for your continued support of Colorado Public Radio. The news and music services you rely on continue to grow to better serve communities across the state because of your generosity. Your membership matters, and we are so grateful for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The world first heard John Denver's Rocky Mountain High 50 years ago. It served as something of a musical magnet, attracting people to Colorado. Lawmakers here declared it the state's second official song in 2007. Today, we reflect on John Denver's legacy, musically and environmentally. G. Brown was the founding co-director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. In 2013, he told me John Denver was the natural choice as the hall's first inductee. I don't think there's any other performer who embodies Colorado like John Denver. Certainly in my travels, you meet someone from the other side of the world, someone from New Zealand, you say, yes, I'm, I'm from Colorado, and the first thing out of their mouth Oh, John Denver. John Elway might be a, a close second uh, in recent <laughs> years, but it's always been John at number one. Despite his name, John Denver wasn't actually from Denver. Tell us about his early life. John, somewhat of a military brat, uh, headquartered in Texas for much of his young life. That's where his grandmother gave him his first guitar as a gift, and he was bitten by the music bug. Uh, he took the name Denver he always said, you know, t- taking on the surname uh, to honor the, the city that he loved, the state that he loved. But I have an interesting story from Randy Sparks of the New Christie Minstrels. Yeah. John spent a heartbeat in that group in the mid-60s before he went on to the Chad Mitchell Trio and then his solo career. And it was with the New Christie Minstrels that Randy claims he told John that John Duchendorf 
was not going to fit on the marquee, and he needed to change his name. And this was, of course, his original name, Henry John Duchendorf Jr. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yeah, hard German pronunciation, Deutschendorf. I don't know. Right. Exactly. Anyway, a lot of vowels and harsh consonant sounds. Anyway, uh, Randy told John that he had to take a stage name, that that would not fit on the marquee. And John, to Randy's telling, said, this is my father's name. I will never change my name. I will not dishonor him that way. Hmm. Randy said... Pal, you got 24 hours. We got to put something down here. And in Randy's office, the new Christie Minstrels had just had a hit called Denver, written about our city. It was a very minor hit nationally, but here locally, uh, charted highly, was number one on KIMN. Anyway, the sheet music was hanging behind Randy's desk, and someone looked at it and said, Yeah, you're John Denver. And Randy maintains that's how, that's how he took it. But John had a more romantic telling of it. I'm dying to hear that song now. Can we listen to it together? If you can find it. That may be the source of John Denver's last name. Denver joined a folk group, as you mentioned, G, called the Chad Mitchell Trio. He actually replaced Chad Mitchell. And this was kind of like a a Kingston Trio type group. Is that right? Yes. Just the folk music of the day. And what kind of time did did Denver spend in that trio? A few years. What really launched him was Peter, Paul, and Mary covering his composition, Leaving on a Jet Plane. That established him as a writer, put some coin in his pocket, and then when he launched his solo career... He already had a leg up. This was in 1967. Why don't we hear just a bit of that? So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, baby. That's, of course, the Peter, Paul, and Mary version. Why don't we fast forward to one of Denver's best-known songs, Rocky Mountain High, which came out in 1972. This is obviously his solo career. It's actually one of Colorado's two official state songs. And a little later in the program, we're going to hear about the fight to make it a second state song. Here's Denver himself reading from his autobiography, Take Me Home and talking about how he came to write the song while camping in the mountains outside of Aspen with his wife Annie and some friends. There happened to be a meteor shower that night. We were right below the tree line, maybe up around 10,500 feet, and we hadn't seen too much activity in the sky yet. There was a stand of trees over by the lake and about a dozen Aspen scattered around. Around midnight, I had to get up to pee and stepped out into this open spot. It was dark over by those trees, darker than in the clearing. I looked over there and could see the shadow from the starlight. There was so much light from the stars in the sky that there was a noticeable difference between the clearing and everywhere else. The shadow of the starlight blew me away. I went back and lay down next to Annie in front of our tent, thinking everybody had gone to sleep, and thinking about how in nature all things large and small were interwoven, when swoosh, a meteor went smoking across the sky. And from all over the campground came the odd responses. Did you see that? 
It got bigger and bigger until the tail stretched out all the way across the sky and burned itself out. Everybody was awake, and it was raining fire in the sky. John Denver reading from his autobiography, Take Me Home, and telling the story of how he was inspired to write Rocky Mountain High. My guest is G. Brown, curator of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And G., why do you think that song, Rocky Mountain High, was so popular? Uh, I'm not sure I'm an authority on what makes a hit, but I know that John was very proud of that song just because it became part of the vernacular. How many people write something that just becomes embedded in the culture? And the phrase Rocky Mountain High accomplished that for him more than any other song in his catalog. No, he'd be poor or mad if he never saw an Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain fire in the sky Friends around the campfire And everybody's high I think it worked as something of a Chamber of Commerce message for the state of Colorado, too. People, I just picture them packing their bags and heading for this mythical place described in the song, you know. I agree, and that might have been part of what created the backlash to John's career, at least here locally in Colorado. Some people resented the fact that he was letting the, the word out. That is longtime music journalist G. Brown. He's the founding director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. When we come back, success for John Denver did not come overnight. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Ballots are out for this year's primary election in Colorado, and nearly everyone gets to participate. Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Who's running? What are the issues? How do you cast your vote? I'm Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom. Find out what you need to know to fill out your ballot online at CPR.org. And on Tuesday, June 28th, hear full coverage of the primary here on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. In 1972, 50 years ago, John Denver released a song that found its way into people's hearts and helped people find their way to Colorado, Rocky Mountain High. This week, Governor Jared Polis permanently renamed a trail in Golden Gate Canyon State Park, John Denver's Rocky Mountain High Trail. Today, we reflect on the singer-songwriter's legacy. His success did not come overnight. It wasn't until 1971 and his fourth album, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, that he broke through, largely because of this song. Denver co-wrote Take Me Home, Country Roads with Bill Danoff, who sang in a duo with his girlfriend, Taffy. In December 1970, they opened for Denver at a small club called The Cellar Door in Washington, D.C. After a performance one night, they decided to go over to Taffy's apartment to try out some new songs. On the way, Denver broke his thumb when the taxi he was riding in got rear-ended. But after a stop at the emergency room, he finally made it to the apartment. And after a few minutes, they all took out their guitars. Danoff picks up the story. 
Taffy said, play him the Country Roads one. I've been working on this thinking, gee, if we could get this on to Johnny Cash, we would have it made. Because Johnny Cash was a huge star. He had a television show at the time. So, and it just didn't sound like it was John Denver's type, according to the stuff he was doing at the time. And I said, oh, he won't like it. And John said, well, play something. You've got to play something. Play, the, play me that one. So I played Country Roads, and he flipped out. He said, that's a hit song. Did you guys record it? And I said, no, we don't have a, a record deal. And he said, well, I've got a record deal, and I'm doing a record now. Why don't we record it together, um, John Denver and Fat City, which was the name we went by. So uh, we learned it. John, of course, couldn't play the guitar with a broken uh, thumb, so I played. And uh, I said, we need to um, rewrite the second verse. The second verse was something that wouldn't have gotten played on AM radio. And we need to write a lyric for the bridge, the middle part. Wait, what was it about that second verse that wouldn't have been played on radio? Well, it went, In the foothills, hiding from the clouds, Pink and purple, West Virginia farmhouse, Naked ladies, men who look like Christ, And a dog named Poncho, nibbling on the rice. (laughs) There had been this group of hippies, like a commune, that came to see us all the time. And there'd be about a dozen of them, and they brought Poncho the dog, and they'd sit up front in our shows in the nightclub. And uh, then one of the guys was an artist, and he would draw us pictures of the stuff. And, of course, the day being what it was, the women were out there bare-breasted and uh, working in the fields, and the guys all looked like Christ. They had long hair and beards. and So I thought, that's not going to make it on the radio. You can't have naked ladies in Christ in the same um, in the same verse. So there was some rewriting. What did John Denver contribute to this song? Energy, really energy. And if if there was a particular line, it might be the All My Memories line, because that sounds very like John. And he actually had another song called All of My Memories. It, It was John's energy that made us focus on finishing. And the next night we performed it in the cellar door, and the folks clapped for about five minutes. And I'd never had a reaction like that to a song before or since. We did the, the next night the same reaction. And after the second show, John called his producer in New York and said, uh, book a studio time for Monday because I've got a hit song and huh. bringing my friends Bill and Taffy up. And that was it. Bill Danoff speaking with me from his home in Washington, D.C. in 2013. You may be familiar with another song by Danoff, a little ditty called Afternoon Delight. He recorded it with his group, the Starland Vocal Band. And John Denver recorded several other songs by Danoff, including this one from Poems, Prayers, and Promises. I guess he'd rather be in Colorado He'd rather spend his time out where the sky looks like a pearl after rain We are remembering singer-songwriter and environmental activist John Denver today. His iconic Rocky Mountain High came out 50 years ago. If that makes you feel old, I get it. Tom Crum was one of Denver's closest friends. They met in Aspen in 1970. And Crum, a martial arts instructor, became Denver's personal trainer and bodyguard. Together, they started the Windstar Foundation, an environmental organization that was based in Snowmass. In John Denver's autobiography, he says, Tom convinced me that while I was really high from all of my success and fully willing to commit myself to and participate in worthy endeavors, 
I needed a grounding influence to bring back the spiritual impulses that I drew my music from. What exactly was he looking for? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, John, I, I think anyone who listens to John recognizes that, that the music uh, came with great spirit. There was some something in his voice that uh, uh, resonated with all of us and spoke to something a little deeper than just the uh, lyrics or just the the ego involved in any singer. And it was that depth of spirit, that depth of heart, that depth of compassion, which I think really resonated with the the people around the world that, that made him one of the biggest artists in the world back in the 70s. Um, and I think, you know, a celebrity is a dangerous track, and that trajectory can lead you right out of the gift that brought you there. Huh. And I think John knew that. I think he wanted to to have something that uh, allowed his uh, genuine vehicle for bringing a certain spirit and enthusiasm and heart uh, to the world not to be lost. This is really fascinating because, in a way, the authenticity of the art that catapults you to fame carries with it the risk of, like, real inauthenticity, Um Something that starts as profound can lead to superficiality. Was he afraid of fame or what it could do to him? I think anybody who uh, is thrown into that at a young age recognizes at a deep level when they look in the mirror, you know, this isn't who I am. If I get carried away with this, I will get drawn into behaviors that doesn't support my highest purpose. I think one thing that was so special about John is that he recognized that he wanted to make a difference and he wanted to use his celebrity, whatever that was, to support him in making a difference. There's an awful lot of celebrities who want to do good things out there to increase their celebrity. John wanted to do good things and he used his celebrity to do that. So it's a little reversal. I think John knew that and I think John set the stage for a lot of the the Bonos and Sting and these other people who have done such wonderful things. I think he inspired them uh, because of his commitment to all the issues he was committed in, way beyond his music, hunger, children, social justice issues, nuclear nonproliferation, the environment, all of those things. That was John's higher purpose. So how did you keep him centered? What were the rituals or the practices you engaged in with him to, you know, make sure that he kept his eyes on the prize, I guess. (laughs) Well, I don't think anyone stays centered all the time. At least I haven't met them. But uh, I I think that if if one spends every day working on being present, starting with uh, uh, being silent, starting with just sitting, working on, on breathing, it's not only good for your vocal cords, it's also very good to get back to a place that's here, present, and conscious. And uh, those things we'd work on a lot. You know, when you're performing, as John did back in, the, in his heyday in front of 40,000 people a night, say in Madison Square Garden, two shows for over 20,000 each, and we would do that repeatedly for uh, months on end, 
John wanted to have everybody, 20,000 people, feel like a campfire and, and have a pin drop. You could hear a pin drop, and you could. And to do that, you better be very conscious. And so working on that daily allows it to happen under the pressure of 20-some thousand people. And so it sounds like you really worked on med- meditation practices with him. Oh, absolutely. You know, the work that I do in teaching Aikido and teaching meditation, uh, I tried to transfer to John to support him and all that he was doing. And uh, if you look at the, the body of the good work that he did, you know, for the most part, he, uh, he was able to maintain that center. What did he love about Aspen so much? That, that's where you met in 1970, right? Yeah. Yeah, John was the first first person I ever met when I, I was passing through Aspen to Jackson Hole and stopped in at this little gathering for only a couple of hours. And the first guy I saw was a little guy in granny glasses tuning his guitar. And I went over to him and we just caught eye contact. There were maybe only 20 people in the, this little gathering and walked over, said, hi, I'm Tom. He said, hi, I'm John. I said, what do you do? He said, nothing. <laughs> he said, I'm a... I'm a an unemployed singer-songwriter at the moment, and we laughed, and I said, well, I just got out of the corporate world. I'm heading to Jackson Hole, and that was about it. You never actually made it to Jackson Hole. You stayed in Aspen. <laughs> um, you also right. eventually became John Denver's personal bodyguard for many years. What, right. did, what did that involve? Well, you know, John was on a rocket ship. Uh, he had called me. I had my academy going, martial art academy. I was also teaching school here, and had a bunch of things going, and John had found out about what I was doing and called. Chris O'Connor, his agent, actually called, and I went up to John's home, and he wanted to be coached in uh, some of what I knew, and I began that process, and we became just like brothers. We just hit it off. There was such common ground. And then shortly thereafter, John was in L.A., and he gave me a call and asked if I'd come out to his studio. He really needed to talk to me, and I flew out there, and John and I are sitting there, and he says, Tom, I'm embarking on this major concert tour. I've never done it before. You know, the big Madison Square Gardens of the world and two shows a night, and we want to do it in a revolving stage, which is only about a foot and a half off the ground. People are on about one, two feet, three feet away from it. No barriers, no, you know, a bunch of guys in T-shirts, big guys throwing guys back over the barriers. You know, he wanted to keep it 20,000 people and keep it like a campfire and uh, never been done before. And he was concerned and he, and he wanted me to be with him for that and, and uh, also continue coaching with him. I said, you know, John, I got a family, I got a job, I got a life, I really can't do that. And then John, you know, in his wonderful persuasive way said, just give me three weeks. It's a three-week tour and that's it. That'll get me started. Well, you know, six years later, I was still on the road with him. So <laughs> shows you the persuasive nature of the man. And, and, and also what he was doing in the world, it was, he was worthy of support. And in um, 1976, you and Denver started the Windstar Foundation based in Snowmass. What was Denver's vision for Windstar? Well, you know, John and I and others would have long talks. When you're on the road, you have long talks in the evenings, and they'd be very conscious about the world, about the environment, about the big issues that were going on. And it became apparent that it would be very useful, especially with John's power in the world, to create a place where people could gather, could have conversations, could create spin-off projects that would make a difference. 
And we had just come back from a wonderful uh, experience with the humpback whale that was encouraged by one of John's dear friends, Jacques Cousteau, that was incredibly inspiring. And of course, I Calypso was one of the great songs about the oceans and environment that John did. Yeah. But we had just come back from this incredible experience in the water with the humpbacks. And this Snowmass Monastery had a thousand acres of beautiful land. Uh, they had more than that, but they needed to let go of some of it to meet their expenses. They were having a difficult time. And we walked that land and saw the site map, and doggone if it didn't look exactly like a humpback whale. Even the little lake there had was in the place of the eye, had the flukes, had everything. And there was something quite magical about that moment, walking the land and seeing that. And that's how the land came to be. And in a few years, by the early 80s, we had wind generation experiments. We had solar retrofitting. We had college classes in it certified with, for, through CU. We had uh, uh, biointensive gardenings, uh, biodomes, creating uh, aquaculture, and all kinds of uh, consciousness, social issues uh, being discussed through workshops and symposia. So it was a, it was a wonderful thing, probably ahead of its time. Well, it's the same with his John's music. You know, John's music spoke to the heart. It spoke to coming back to the environment. It spoke to uh, being present in consciousness and possibility. And that works great in the tough times. I think that's one of the reasons John's music was so successful in the 70s, because this was the post-Vietnam days. It was still Vietnam, actually, for a lot of it. Uh, there were a lot of troubles, a lot of... Uh, issues going on, the Iranian hostage issue, the gas shortages, you know, and when things are tough, you come back to really uh, conscious music that brings you back to home and hearth. Tom Crum speaking with me in 2013 about his good friend, singer-songwriter John Denver. The Windstar Foundation closed in 2012, but the land it was on, that humpback whale shape, is protected as part of a conservancy. When we come back, the fight to turn Rocky Mountain High into Colorado's second official state song. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, this is Kate Celisti from Lyons, Colorado, and I am thrilled to be able to support CPR for the fabulous classical music that I just love and our wonderful coverage of both local and national news. This is Andrew in Boulder. I talk about your stories every day with friends, family and people in my office and want to continue to support you guys as best I can. Members help make it all possible. Thank you. Today, we are remembering the late singer-songwriter John Denver. His inextinguishable song, Rocky Mountain High, was released 50 years ago. This September, the Colorado Symphony celebrates the track with a special concert. As we've mentioned, it is Colorado's second state song which of course means there was one already. the Columbines Grow was adopted as Colorado's state song in 1915. Well, fast forward to 2007 when Bob Hagedorn, a Democrat, was representing Aurora in the state Senate. 
he led the drive to have Denver's anthem named Colorado's second official state song. Thank you for being with us. I appreciate being here. You know, Where the Columbines Grow seems like a nice song. Why did Colorado need a second state song? Well, first of all, is that I've never, you know, this was what, 15 years in the legislature at the time. I never once heard anybody play it or sing it. And, that is uh, where the Columbines grow. Correct. Uh-huh. I mean, and it's amazing when we had discussion uh, of Rocky Mountain High, people would ask, "What it, you know, and these are legislators, mind you, what is the state song? <laughs> they couldn't name the original one. Correct. I see. But why Rocky Mountain High? Why that song in particular? It's so um, descriptive of the beauty of Colorado and why, you know, a lot of people love our state. I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years that the reason they came to Colorado was because of John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it seemed like a natural to be the anthem for the state of Colorado. You did encounter some opposition from lawmakers who thought the song was, uh, at least in part, about drug use, particularly the line that goes, friends around the campfire and everybody's high. What did you tell people who said, we're not making a song with a drug reference or a second state song? Well, high is kind of a generic term. I mean, people can, uh, you know, win $500 in the lotto and get high over that. Since I've focused a lot on health care issues, and there's always the occasional discussion of children having sugar highs. And uh, so what's a traditional thing to eat around, you know, the campfire but s'mores and uh, chocolate, marshmallows and graham crackers. So you could have, you know, kids high. And of course, there is obviously, uh, you know, popular uh, activities that is now legal in the state that <laughs> yes. uh, also uh, produces highs. In the end, let's just say that the, the state Senate voted 26 to 8, the House voting 50 to 11. Were you surprised by all the media attention at the time? To be honest, I was absolutely stunned, flabbergasted, shocked. The New York Times picked it up. Yeah. From the New York Times, I'm assuming reading the story, the London Times picked it up. Japanese uh, media carried it. Uh, you were term limited out of the Senate in 2009. And as you've mentioned, you were involved in a lot of health care legislation. But Bob Hagedorn, let's face it, this is in large part what you will be remembered for. Are you okay with that? Well, I have a chuckle out of it. Of course, uh, I mean, I figure in about 35 years when I drop dead and the Senate does my memorial, that more than likely, you know, the lead of it's going to be, you know, the state second, you know, state song. And I think that uh, a lot of people are actually quite happy that we have Rocky Mountain High as our state song. Now his life is full of wonder, but his heart still knows Fear of a simple thing cannot Former State Senator Bob Hagedorn speaking with me in 2013. John Denver released Rocky Mountain High 50 years ago. The Colorado Symphony will celebrate with a concert in September. The Colorado Rocky Mountain High. Special thanks to David Hill, who originally produced this special. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with listener-supported Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Rocky Mountain High.